Grab your Bibles, make your way to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 6 this morning, and uh, we're going to be looking at a very unique miracle, which many of us have probably heard of or familiar with, known as the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. The reason this miracle is unique is because outside of the resurrection, it is the only miracle to which all four Gospels record. And so what we're going to be doing this morning is we're doing with our ongoing series of Tell Me the Story of Jesus is we're going to primarily be coming from the Gospel of Mark, but we're going to pull from the Gospel of Matthew, Luke, and John just to get a complete picture of what is happening, what is taking place, so we can understand all the situation. Because each gospel gives us just a little bit more information. So we're going to get an incredible picture of this miracle this morning. But before we hop in, um, let's pray together. Father, we've been coming before you, adoring you in worship through song, through prayers, through uh, just focusing on you. And you are a great God. So we sang, great are you, Lord. You are truly great. The grace you've given us, the grace we've been able to obtain, the forgiveness for our sins, the gift of eternal life. Father, your spirit now dwelling inside of your children to know that you now call us heirs to your kingdom, co-heirs with Christ. You are a great God. And so, Father, we turn our attention to your word to hear your voice, not a preacher's voice, but to hear your voice to gain understanding of who we need to be as we represent you in this world. As we are called to be your ambassadors, you have empowered, commissioned, and commanded us for that. And Father, I praise you that you know every single heart in this place. You know those who belong to you and those who are seeking or searching, trying to come to the conclusion. I pray that those here who do not belong to you, who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, Lord, that your Spirit will come upon their hearts. You will give them eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that is ready to make the commitment to follow you be saved, be given eternal life. Pray, Lord, to use me as an instrument of your righteousness in this moment, that you alone be glorified, your kingdom and will be the only thing to be done in this place, that we would continue to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we pray that your spirit would open the scriptures to us and give us the understanding as you did with your original disciples. I thank you for what's going to happen here in this time that we have together. Thank you for allowing us to be in your presence. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we need to set up the situation here. Again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 30. We're going to make our way through verse 45. As you can see behind me, we're also going to pull from the Gospel of Matthew, Luke, and John. And those are the chapter and references uh, to this event. Uh, All the Gospels point out that there were three main events that happened leading into this miracle. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all point out to the fact that Jesus has sent out the 12 disciples for the very first time that they are to go on and take the ministry as their own. Second thing that happened is the Gospel of John lets us know that as the disciples were out two by two, Jesus wasn't just like taking a nap, He wasn't, though he did take naps, um, but Jesus was doing ministry himself. Uh, he was ministering to people, letting people know in whose authority he has come upon or come in and how he is a witness to the kingdom of God. Finally, coming back to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
they let us know that it was also during this time, which we looked at last week, that John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus' ministry, was beheaded. And this is how Matthew actually introduces this miracle known as the feeding of the 5,000, as Matthew writes in verse 13 of chapter 14. Now when Jesus heard this, that is referring to the disciples of John coming to Jesus to tell him what had happened to John. And though mentioned John's death, we, we pick up here as... The disciples are now back with Jesus, and John picks up that now Jesus is continuing the ministry as the apostles were away, and then they begin this encounter, uh, which I doubt the disciples actually wanted, even though it is an amazing one. It's one, like I said, of the only miracles recorded in all four Gospels, so it made a deep impact on the Gospel writers, that they all wanted to make sure that this story was out there that people could understand it. So let's read it. And we'll walk through and see four things this morning that we need to understand. The word of the Lord says in verse 30, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized him, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of him. And when he, speaking of Jesus at this moment, went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Verse 35, And when he grew late, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away. Go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And he took up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. All the gospels agree that this miracle took place after the apostles got into a boat with the intention to get away. John points out that they went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The Gospel of Luke adds that they were heading to this little town or village known as Bethsaida. Now, the last mention of any town they were in in the Gospels comes from the Gospel of Matthew, which tells us that they were in Capernaum, before they set out to go to Bethsaida, as a reminder, Capernaum acted as kind of like a hometown or a home base to Jesus' ministry. He would always return back to Capernaum, even though he would go to other parts of the region, other parts of the, of the country. And so when I bring that up, if we were to look at a map, we could see that Jesus and his disciples were not traveling very far on the water. It's roughly about five miles from Capernaum to Bethsaida going across the water, which gives us also the understanding on how the crowds were able to beat them there on foot and to welcome them ashore. Now, the first thing we see before this miracle even happens is Jesus understood that he and his disciples needed to get away. 
And that's something we need to understand. We need to recharge. Jesus said in verse 31, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place. That means an out-of-the-way area. And rest a while. And the reason is because many were coming and going, and they had no leisure or rest even to eat. None of the Gospels tell us how long the disciples went out for the first time. They don't get a length of time. Uh, We know that when they came back, they were pretty excited about what they had seen and what they had done. Mark tells us that they came back and they told Jesus all that they had taught. And along with this, Jesus' fame had begun to grow. Even King Herod had heard of him. And the crowds were beginning to flock to him, wanting to be around that. On top of that, we have to remind ourselves, Jesus has just heard that the forerunner to his ministry, John the Baptist, has been beheaded. And so there's a lot to take in for the disciples and for Jesus in this moment. And he recognized the need that he had. He recognized the need that the disciples had, that they needed to get away. They needed to go to a desolate place. They needed to recharge. Isn't Jesus saying that the ministry is done in this area? He'll return back to Capernaum. But he understood that his disciples, they needed to catch their breath. They needed to check out for a little bit because as Jesus' ministry continues to go on, it's only going to intensify as he gets closer to the cross. Now, being involved in ministry, many of us I know here are involved in ministry in some way or another. You're going to come to a point where you're going to realize that you're running on fumes. The tank is getting empty. And if we don't consistently and continually recharge our spiritual battle battery, we're going to burn out. Because this is what ministry calls us to do. This is what the disciples have been doing. This is what Jesus has been doing. Ministry calls us all, and we're all called to ministry, to pour out ourselves. To pour ourselves into other people's lives, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to pour into them. The thing is, if we're not being poured into or pouring into our own bodies, we're going to burn out. I've learned that if I'm not reading the Bible on my own, not for preaching, not for teaching, if I'm not studying the Bible on my own, again, not for the sake of teaching and not for preaching, if I'm not praying for my family and myself and our, and our kids and for this church family, I find myself becoming spiritually fatigued. And spiritual fatigue is a lot different than emotional fatigue or mental fatigue or even physical fatigue because spiritual fatigue will actually take those all on too. So when I'm not feeding myself, I tend to become a little more lethargic. I don't want to do anything physical, which that's hard to do if you're in the ministry because ministry calls for physical action. If I'm getting spiritually fatigued, I don't tend to make the best decisions, which again in the ministry, you've got to make good decisions because it has eternal impacts. I find if I'm spiritually fatigued, I'm a little easy, more easily frustrated, which is not a good place to be when you want to tell people that God loves them, God died for them, God rose from the grave for them. But if you're spiritually fatigued, you're going to be emotionally frustrated, easily aggravated, and you're not going to be able to do what God wants to do through your life. For this reason, we find here in the Gospels, we find throughout Jesus' ministry, as a reminder to us over and over again, we have to get away. And I don't mean on vacation. I don't want you to leave this place. Well, pastor says, and you start scheduling my vacation. No, uh, and you can get away on vacation. I do that when we go on our family vacations. I get away. I get with my Bible. I find a, a desolate place, a place that's out of the way, that people will have to come and find me. And I'll read my Bible, and I'll be praying, and I'm 
feeding my spiritual soul so I can love on my family and be with them. I mean, we got to get away during the day. You need to get away during the week. Get away from the TV. Get away from the computer. Turn the cell phone off. Turn the tablet off. And just get with God. Just focus on him. Be recharged. And Jesus was intentional about doing this throughout his ministry. And here he's calling for his disciples to get away. He's being intentional. Guys, we got to get away. What that means is we've got to be intentional about it too. You may have to start putting it in your calendar, time to recharge. You may have to have this time set during the day that this is when I'm going to get away from all the noise, from all the news, from all the things going on in the world, the purpose that Jesus tells disciples, this is why we're getting away. He says, we're going to go get some rest. You know, that's a command of God. God commands us to rest. He specifically on the seventh day of creation created a day known as the Sabbath. And he told his people, which would be the Jewish people, throughout the law, you have to honor the Sabbath. It was a day of rest. It was a day to focus on God. It was a day that the Jews believed in so much they actually started putting commands and laws and regulations of what constituted his work and what wasn't work. Now, I'm not saying we need to become legalistic, but you need to schedule a Sabbath. You need to schedule rest. And that doesn't mean, like what I'm going to probably do this afternoon, that doesn't mean my Sabbath is when I'm sitting on the couch and I fall asleep to a football game. It's resting from the world. It's stepping back and stepping into God and to focus on him, to find rest. One way I do this throughout the week is I spend time in God's word. And again, I don't do it for the sake of what I'm doing right now in preaching or teaching on Wednesday night. I just spend time in God's word. And I have a Bible reading plan. I hope you all have started a Bible reading plan for the year. If not, find one. And if I'm finished that Bible reading plan, then I'm spending time in a book, and I'm praying. I'm praying for the family. I'm praying for Jamie and her work. I'm praying for the kids that she just to love on and be a light to there in the classroom. I'm praying uh, for this church family and for God to move in incredible ways. I do it on Sunday mornings, too. I intentionally wake up every single Sunday morning before anyone else in the house does. It's still dark outside. I grab our smallest dog, I let her go do her thing, and I get a cup of coffee. We go sit on the couch, she curls up in the blanket. I get my Bible out, and here's the thing, I'm not prepping to preach at that moment. I'm just being with God. The quiet of the morning, I'm reading his word, letting his voice speak over me. And We just finished up Job as a family in our reading plan, and I'm happy we're done with Job. That's a lot of complaining. But... I can still see the glory of God in that. And I pray and for God to prepare my heart. I pray for you all, even though I don't know if you're going to be here on Sunday or not. I don't know the names, but God knows who's going to be here. And I pray that God begins preparing my heart and preparing your heart before you even come to this place. When I finally arrive in the building, I get things prepped that I need to get prepped before you all start showing up, making sure the coffee's hot, making sure there's plenty of it for you to drink. And then I get away again to my office. 
That's not to hide. I go back there again to pray for you, to pray for me, to, to go over the message of this morning, to read through the word of God of what I'm preaching. So I'm not just preaching words, but I'm preaching what God wants us to hear. God wants his people to be intentional about getting away, to rest, to recharge. And Charlie says amen, right, Charlie? <laughs> Our soul needs it because God gives us a day that we a new day so we can bring him glory. But if we're not charged spiritually for it, we're probably going to misrepresent represent him in it. Again, the original intention was, let's get away and let's rest. Problem is, how much rest do you think they got? They get into a boat, the intention to go to a desolate area, Bethsaida, about five miles. Maybe Jesus said, hey, guys, paddle slowly. Maybe say, hey, we're just going to put the sail up and we'll let the wind slowly blow us that way. And so we'll just take our time. Because the only rest they actually got in this moment was the time they were in the boat. Because as soon as they get to the shore, they see the crowd that once was with them on one side of the sea has now grown to a massive crowd on the other side of the sea. And I imagine the disciples that are at this moment, because they're human beings like us, I imagine they're looking at the crowd and say, can we not just get a break? Did you see we were trying to get away from you? You see, we were trying to go away and to leave you over there. When are you just going to let us take a break? But notice what Jesus does. Verse 34. When Jesus saw the crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus is just there, and he begins teaching many things, you know, verse 34. Actually, uh, the other Gospels, Luke and John, point out that Jesus wasn't just teaching, but he was also healing. And we don't know what the disciples were doing. There seems to be, we'll look at it here in a second from the Gospel of John, it seems like they may have dismissed themselves. But Jesus compa had compassion on them. And how Jesus responded to the crowds is how we need to respond to people, because we're called to be like Jesus. So we have to need we need to see and understand the people. He had compassion. The word compassion carries the meaning of having a deep pity. But it's not like, aw, that's, that's not compassion. It, it comes from the bowels of an individual. That word compassion carries the meaning of being deeply moved. And Jesus looks out and he has this compassion on the people because he saw what was actually happening. They were sheep without a shepherd. And we need to start praying. I need to start praying to start seeing people the way Jesus sees people with compassion. To see that they are sheep without a shepherd. What's even more interesting, when we use the gospel of John and, and he brings this up about Jesus seeing the people and having compassion, they're sheep without a shepherd. John also points out that the Passover was at hand. Meaning the Passover, the celebration, was either about to begin or it had just begun. Thing is, we have to understand the Passover was only held in Jerusalem. And if you were a righteous Jew, in particular a Jewish man, every year you would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But here we find 5,000 men along with women and children. The Gospel of Matthew points out at the end of this, this event. Instead of going south... To Jerusalem, they would have had to go north and east. They weren't going where they were supposed to be going. 
And so Jesus looks out upon this crowd and he sees them and he understands them. These people are lost. They had no direction in life. There was no one adequately leading them. They were just wandering. And this is the definition of someone who doesn't have Jesus and that they need to understand it. Without Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're lost. Without Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you really have no direction in life because you do not have the good shepherd. Without Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are not living in purpose or for purpose and the purpose to which God created you for. You're just spiritually wandering, going from place to place, trying to figure things out. So it's no wonder when we watch the news and we see people of this world who are lost, and we see how aggravated and frustrated they are and destructive they are, because they don't have a shepherd. They're like people in this crowd. They're sheep without a shepherd. This crowd wasn't doing what they were born to do. They weren't where they were supposed to be. They were just wandering with no direction. And Jesus, seeing the crowd, seeing the need of the crowd, he had compassion, so he began to teach and he began to heal. And all this was going on, again, we don't know where the disciples are in this moment. Maybe they're watching. But the day is, is starting to come to a close. I imagine it was a little chaotic, especially if the disciples weren't in the midst of the crowd. Because the crowd is never given a command on what to do or where to go or how to sit or how to act until Jesus performs the miracle. John tells us that after Jesus is healed and taught in John 6, 3, that Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples, which makes me think that's probably where the disciples went. They checked out. I'm done, Jesus. You deal with it. So he goes and sits by him. And this is where this miracle takes kind of a comedic turn, at least I think it does. Imagine disciples were worn out. They just got back from traveling. They just thought, because Jesus said it, they were going away to find rest. This crowd shows up in need. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all point out the disciples wanted Jesus to tell the crowds to leave. Make them depart. Disciples were done. They're ready to check out. They're ready to lay down. They're ready to find something to eat. They're ready just to take a nap. And Jesus, on the other hand, he sees this opportunity to not just do the miracle. The miracle is not the purpose. The, the miracle is the teaching lesson for the disciples. The disciples looked at this massive crowd. They knew the day was getting late. They knew these people were getting hungry. And if you've ever been around a lot of people who get hungry, you know, they tend to get hangry. And they just wanted them to go away. They had no steady source of income. Ever since they started following Jesus Christ, all of them walked away from their jobs. And so they're following Jesus. We know when Jesus told them to go out, he told them not to take anything with them. So we can imagine when he, they came back, they didn't bring anything back with them. And so they come to Jesus, and I imagine it wasn't very polite. And they tell Jesus, send them away. And they give the reason the crowds, they need to eat. We don't have money to buy it. A denarii is a day's wage. So the disciples looked upon the crowd, and they're like, we would need at least 200 denarii to even make a dent in this situation. 200 days of wages over half a year. 
And if you know Judas within the disciples, I imagine Judas at that moment just kind of reaching back and grabbing the money bag because he was in charge of the money. Jesus wanted the disciples to feed the people. All this is going on. John gives a little more detail. Jesus turns his attention to one of the disciples named Philip. Gospel of John, this is one of the few times the disciple Philip or the apostle Philip is mentioned in the Gospels. And so Jesus turns to Philip and he asks Philip a question. He asks him, where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? Gospel John also points out that Jesus did this to test Philip. And so my image and why I think this part of the story becomes funny is my image of Jesus is he's turning to Philip and he's asking him this question. All the while he's got a little smirk on his face and he's probably laughing in his head because John says that Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He already knew what was about to take place. And so Philip, he's looking at Jesus, the leader, the the teacher, the son of God, and he tells Jesus just what the disciples just said, that it's going to take at least 200 denarii, and that's probably not even going to make a dent. And so Andrew, one of the few times Andrew speaks up in the Gospels, that's Peter's brother. Andrew brings it to the attention of, of the disciples and to Jesus, like, look, I came across this little kid, this little boy, He's got five loaves of bread, and he's got two fish. But Andrew does it almost in a skeptical way because he knows that wouldn't even be enough to take care of a crowd this size. And there's another interesting thought there. Obviously, Jesus was prepared for this moment. But out of this entire crowd of Jewish men and women and children, which would have been over 5,000 people, there was only one young boy who came prepared to stay for an extended period of time. Again, disciples are kind of off the hook because of Jesus' instructions to them back in Mark chapter 6. But they find themselves in this pickle. The Gospels point out they're in the middle of nowhere. There's all these people. Like going on a road trip as a parent. One thing that tends to happen when we be driving... We'd go through a town. I don't know if you as a parent you can relate to this. We'd go through a town. As soon as we got outside of the town, it was typically Abbey, sometimes Ethan, we're all of a sudden spurred out, oh, I really got to go to the bathroom. And you're not to the next town for another 30, 40, 50 minutes. That's the situation the disciples are in. We're in the middle of nowhere. We've got no resources out here. We've got this little kid with five pieces of bread and two fish. You've got these massive amount of people. And what are we going to do with it? Again, Jesus knew what he was going to do. Jesus knew there was a boy in the crowd that had the materials he was going to use. Even though Jesus, who was the Son of God, God in the flesh, he could have spoke food into existence. He's doing this because he's preparing his disciples to do what he's been doing in his ministry and what we're all called to do. And here it is. We need to take care of the people. Disciples are growing in their faith. They're growing in their understanding of who Jesus is. They're growing in their understanding of what Jesus is eventually going to commission them to do and that they're going to have to take on the ministry as their own. And at this point in time, Jesus is wanting the disciples to understand that they are going to be in charge of taking care of the people eventually. It is going to be on their shoulders. It is going to be their burden to bear. And I have no doubt the disciples were beginning to get annoyed with Jesus. I mean, put yourself in their sandals. You want these people to leave, and Jesus is like, well, why don't you feed them? 
Why don't you do something about it? I mean, you just came back all, you know, off the mountain in your ministry experience. Surely you learned something out there. Philip, what do you think we should do? And, and so Jesus, I imagine disciples are starting to get so aggravated with him, just send them away. Verse 37, his response to disciples' plea is you give them something to eat. And if I was a disciple in this moment, I'd probably been more like Peter, and I would not have thought Jesus' comment was very funny. But looking from the outside in, there's, there's comedy here. But this is exactly what God has called us to do. You take care of the people. You take care of the people that God has brought into your life, even if you don't want them there at that moment. You do it. It's not the responsibility of a pastor or a missionary or someone who's on staff at a church. If you are a child of God, you feed the people. You take care of their need. This sends disciples into panic when Jesus responds this way. I think that's how we feel sometimes, though. When God tells us to take care of the people he's brought into our life, those people who are lost or sheep without a shepherd. The problem the disciples had in this moment, which I think we can relate to the most, when it comes to feeding people the good news, here's the problem the disciples were having. They looked at what they had. They understood what they didn't have. And they took God completely out of the equation. And we can fall in the same trap. We can see what we have. We can see what we don't have. And whatever it is, at times we can buy into the lie that is just not enough for God to use. Or we can look at what we don't have. And we can excuse ourselves from being used by God completely. See, this miracle is a learning lesson. Jesus wanted the disciples, he wants us to understand it's not about what we think we can do or what we can't do. It's not about what we have or what we don't have. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus, God in the flesh, wanting to do something through the disciples here, just as he wants to do something through us today. Disciples are simply couldn't get past the obvious. And they weren't able to rely on Jesus. They wanted to. But all they could see was what was in front of them. And as God's people, as God's bride and God's church, here's, here's what we need to do. We need to start asking the question, what does our community and our surrounding communities need from us? And how can we take care of them through the gospel? Because Jesus is telling us the same thing he told his disciples on this day. You feed them. God brought them. You feed them. After his interaction, Jesus takes over. He does what he's planning to do all along. He had to put his disciples in a panic, I guess. That's where we need to be. We need to see the need, and then we need to let Jesus take over, but use us for the need. And so he has the crowd sit down in rows of fifties and hundreds. And we read the numbers, but really what it is, it is an image of a massive crop field that has already been harvested with lines, except in this place it's people. 
So you got 100 people down this line, you got 50 down this line. And so the distribution of food is going to be easier to be done. But Jesus is making another point through this physical illustration, which he's been trying to teach his disciples already up to this point. The Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 35, Jesus tells his disciples the fields are white, which means they're ripe for the harvest. In Matthew, chapter 9, verse 37, he says, and the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. And now the disciples have this physical illustration before them, and they should be at the point where they're like, I get it. The harvest is ready. The people are hungry, not just physically, they're spiritually hungry. So Jesus turns and he, after he's sitting down in the group, verse 41, he's taking the five loaves and the two fish. I'm sure he asked for permission from the boy. <laughs> he looks up to heaven and he says a blessing. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. So here comes another teaching lesson, something we need to understand. We need to rely on God's intervention. The disciples got one thing right. They understood they couldn't do what needed to be done, but in understanding that, they forgot that God can do anything. And God was in the flesh right before them. As the Gospel of John points out, the, the Feast of Passover was at hand or is at near. And so being Jews, these were Jewish men with Jesus, that, that would have been on the back of their mind. Hey, the Passover is happening. And the Passover is a time where God interceded. He intervened for his people who were crying out to him. And he sent this reluctant leader named Moses who said he had a speech impediment. And he sent him to Egypt and he brought the empire, the nation of Egypt, to its knees through ten plagues. God can do anything. The disciples are like, okay, Passover, God can do anything. God can handle this situation with 5,000 people. He redeemed over 100,000 people. This is nothing. But they forgot. Here's the thing, God can do anything still today. Do we believe that? Are all things still possible with him? So we have to stop relying on what we see or what we think we know. And we have to be completely relying on God to do what only God can do. And here's the crazy thing about it. I say this a lot. God wants to do the incredible, the miraculous, the magnificent, the unimaginable through his children. That's why he's given us his spirit. He's empowered us for such a task. And so this begins, the disciples see a moral or a physical deficit of material. But you notice how it ends. And they see an abundance of leftovers. Verse 43, and they, this is now speaking of the disciples, took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. Now, how many disciples were there? A little, a little more confident. How many disciples were there? And how many baskets were full of leftovers? So each one was able to look and see, our God is a great God. Great are you, Lord. And it says that all 5,000 men, again, Matthew points out that there were also women and children in the crowd. So the men were the only ones counted. 
So all 5,000 men and however many women were there and however many children were there, they all ate until they were satisfied. Now, when I read satisfied coming from a meal, I don't think, man, I could have used one more piece of bread. Really could have had a bigger piece of fish. No one was wanting more. They were completely satisfied and there were still leftovers. And the lesson we can learn is our God can take what little we think we have and he can make it into something big and he can do something extraordinarily, extraordinary with it if we learn to trust him and rely on him instead of ourselves. He wants to use us, but we can't get in the way. <laughs> God took me, obviously I'm the pastor here at this church. I've been in the ministry for over 20 years. Some of you know this about me, some of you don't. So when I was a kid, I was incredibly shy. I liked sports and did all that sort of stuff, but as a, as a kid, I was shy. I, I've shared it before, but I'm actually an introvert. And you would think, pastor, you should be an extrovert, but I'm actually an introvert. Um, as, as a kid growing up, I had a lot of self-doubts. And sometimes Satan likes to bring those back up. As a teenager... I was rebellious. You know, I, I, I kind of fell away from the relationship I had with God. I kind of fell away from church. I still went. But I learned if you smile and shake hands and say you're doing good, then people probably won't dig too much. And so I was a very rebellious kid. And yet, the shy kid, the introverted kid, the kid with self-doubts, the kid who is rebellious in his youth, God made into a preacher. God can do anything. Sometimes we just have to submit and say, God, you know, I can't do it, but I know you can. So I'm willing to be a part of it. As God's people, we are not like the people in this crowd because we have a sheep who is the good shepherd, who is Jesus Christ, and all we have to do as God's people is follow his lead. Individually and as a church, this brings us to the final question this morning. Are you here today and are you more able to relate to the crowds with Jesus and saying that you are a sheep without a shepherd? The phrase means you're lost. The phrase means you need Jesus. You need to be saved and you need to be forgiven. And this is the gospel we present. That God created you for a relationship with him. It is your sin and sin is, means to fall short it's your sin that is keeping you from that relationship. And coming to church on a Sunday or coming to church regularly or even starting to read your Bible isn't going to heal the sin problem. That's what you can do. You can only be forgiven from your sins because of what Jesus Christ did. Fully and completely, once and for all. And the Bible says that God loves you so much that this is the reason he sent Jesus. Because Jesus was without sin. He was perfect and he was blameless he died for sins on the cross, but he rose again that he might forgive sins and grant eternal life. And the Bible says if you believe that to be true, it does not say you have to fully understand all of it, but you believe that to be true, and you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life, because you believe it in your heart, then you confess him, which means to make publicly known. 
The Bible says you can have your sins forgiven past, present, and future, be given eternal life, and now be given a, be given, become a child of God. And if you're here this morning and you're not sure if you've ever done that, you're not sure if, uh, if, if you are saved, or maybe you know for sure that you're not. We have a time of invitation. I'm going to invite Nick to come up and lead us in a song. I think Bridget's coming with him. And I'm going to be standing down here. You can come down and you can come straight to me. Or you just come and sit in the front row. I'll sit down. We'll talk. We'll pray together. And we'll celebrate with the heavens. And I promise you there won't be a person in this room who will not be overjoyed for you. But let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Thank you, Lord, that you want to transform us. You want to use us. And Father, I know my heart's not always seeing people the way you see them. I don't always see people in, with compassion. And I ask you to forgive me for that. Well, I thank you that you have put this church here. You have put these people here to form this church, this body, because there's work to be done. And you're telling us now to go and feed the people. So thank you, Lord, for giving us such an incredible task and then giving us the spirit to empower us to do that task. Father, I pray that if there's someone here this morning, your spirit is kind of tickled or scratched on their heart about this truth of salvation, about eternal life, and, and they have a, just that feeling that, that they're not right with you because they have yet to be saved. Father, I pray your spirit would bring them down the aisle and today would become their day of salvation. Forgive us if we failed you anyway, and I thank you so much for loving us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.